welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. I'm back, everyone. Thank you for your hard work last week, Chris. I hope you all enjoyed his brilliance. Seven cases for you this time, including a sneaky one left behind last week. May the world and may this army of immigration attorney listeners protect the people of Ukraine, Afghanistan, and all others under attack. I know that so many of you agree that it's for moments like these that we do what we do. First up is Zarate v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on February 18th, 2022. This is a big one on crimes involving moral turpitude, fraud, and deceit. Judge Choflat concurred. And the bad boy was actually published late last week. Well worth the wait, though. In this case, the 11th Circuit has jumped right into a circuit split on the side of the non-citizen, and determined that a conviction for falsely representing a social security number that was not his, in violation of 42 U.S.C. section 408A7B, is not a CIMT. Here's what's up. Mr. Zarate appears to have lived in the U.S. for a long time and to have established in removal proceedings that his removal would cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to his U.S. citizen spouse, parent, or child. Therefore, an IJ was inclined to grant him non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248B, but for one problem. Mr. Zarate has the Social Security conviction, and both the IJ and BIA determined that the conviction was a CIMT. That bars cancellation of removal. But the 11th Circuit disagreed. First, it noted how, quote, amorphous and difficult to define and confine in the immigration arena, end quote, the CIMT definition has been. Indeed, in a monster footnote, Judges Jordan and Jill Pryor state that they agree that the CIMT definition is unconstitutionally vague, but believe themselves bound by the Supreme Court having stated otherwise in 1951. Maybe I'll start counting circuit judges who agree with them. They are becoming more numerous. 
kind of seems inevitable that the Supreme Court will eventually take up the issue again. Anyway, bound by the ambiguously constitutional CIMT definition, the 11th Circuit applied the categorical approach, comparing the elements of the federal CIMT definition to those of falsely representing a social security number. And it seems at first that it's going to be a bit difficult for Mr. Zarate. The 11th Circuit stated in 2015 in Walker v. U.S. Attorney General that, while difficult to define, quote, generally, a crime involving dishonesty or false statement is considered to be one involving moral turpitude. End quote. But that's also not entirely accurate. The BIA and 11th Circuit's CIMT definition actually applies to, quote, conduct that is inherently base, vile, or depraved with two essential elements, reprehensible conduct and a culpable mental state, end quote. That's the true CIMT definition. Now that usually applies to fraud crimes, and actually might always include fraud crimes. The panel implies as much, but doesn't outright say it. But then again, agreeing with the Fourth Circuit, the Eleventh Circuit stated that to be a CIMT, a crime must be more than just a crime. It must, quote, independently violate a moral norm, end quote. I'm getting into all this CIMT discussion because it's important for future Eleventh Circuit CIMT cases. As to the case at hand, even assuming fraud crimes are CIMTs, the Eleventh Circuit held that the Social Security card statute at issue does not always involve fraud so it's not categorically a CIMT. It's certainly, for example, not inherently base, vile, or depraved for any other reason. And because the statute isn't divisible into, say, fraud and non-fraud crimes, the whole crime is not a CIMT under the categorical approach. But why doesn't this crime categorically involve fraud? After all, the elements of the crime are, quote, 1. False representation of a social security number, 2. With intent to deceive, three, for any purpose, end quote. Not gonna lie, sounds like it always involves fraud. Well, and here's a big quote for 11th Circuit CIMT cases, quote, fraud requires that a misrepresentation be made to obtain a benefit from someone or cause a detriment to someone, end quote. While the statute at issue here, 42 U.S.C. section 408A7B, sometimes meets that definition, it doesn't always. And it doesn't always because the statute criminalizes a false representation, quote, for any purpose, end quote. That's just about as broad as it could possibly be. And it doesn't necessarily include obtaining a benefit or doing an action to the detriment of someone or the government. Indeed, it appears to me that the, quote, intent to deceive, end quote, mens rea element in the statute is not overly relevant and it's certainly not the end-all be-all to the CIMT analysis in the 11th Circuit. Remember that for a litany of statutes. And in fact, under BIA case law itself, a conviction where, quote, the minimum conduct prescribed by the clause was a false statement and not a fraudulent one, end quote, the conviction is not categorically a CIMT. That's the BIA. Keeping the quotes going, quote, the intent to deceive is not equivalent to the intent to defraud, which generally requires an intent to obtain some benefit or cause a detriment. There are many situations in which a person may have the intent to deceive without having the intent to defraud, end quote. So, 42 U.S.C. section 408A7B is not, at least for now, a CIMT in the 11th Circuit. This aligns with decisions out of the 2nd and 9th circuits, and it's consistent with similar decisions out of the 4th and 10th. 
but it splits from decisions out of the 5th and 8th circuits, and to an extent, the 6th. Great case. Thanks for leaving the glory of the decision to me, Chris. Judge Choflat concurred to write how he believes the categorical approach is applied in the 11th circuit. Gonna keep going. First, this decision potentially undermines the rationale and therefore viability of recent similar CIMT fraud decisions from the BIA, namely Matter of Al-Sabsabi and Matter of Nemes, episodes 49 and 46 of the podcast, respectively. And actually, the 11th Circuit discusses a long line of BIA decisions to support its decision here, so review it. It may be helpful for similar arguments with similar statutes in other circuits. Next, and wonky as heck to remember, if the BIA ever cites to its 1955 decision in matter of P to support a CIMT finding in your case, the BIA probably errs in the 11th Circuit. See footnote 6. And while we're at BIA CIMT decisions, I note, as Chris did last week, that the Second Circuit decision in Ferreras Velaz v. Garland did not decide whether the BIA's change to the CIMT definition in 2016 in Diaz-Lizarraga was permissible for post-2016 convictions. And that's because Mr. Ferreras didn't make the argument. The issue remains unaddressed, to my knowledge, in any circuit. Finally, Big Pareda footnote confirming a position often discussed on the podcast. At footnote 1, the 11th Circuit declines to give the Supreme Court's Pareto decision the expansive reading that some courts and DHS have hinted at, making clear that the burden-shifting framework applied in that case, and Mr. Pareto's inability to establish his eligibility for non-LPR cancellation, was due only to the fact that the record in that case was unclear as to what Mr. Pareto was actually convicted of. Here, by contrast, quote, it is undisputed that Mr. Zarate was convicted under Section 408A7B. So the question for us is a purely legal one, whether a conviction under that provision is a CIMT, end quote. Put another way, the categorical approach doesn't place a higher burden on non-citizens when the factual record of conviction makes clear what the conviction was actually for even though the non-citizen has the ultimate burden to establish relief eligibility. Keep that footnote in your back pocket, 11th Circuit colleagues. And that is Zarate, the U.S. Attorney General. Next is Matter of TCA, published by the BIA. This is another decision from the BIA about INA Section 209B, the Special Adjustment of Status Provision for Refugees and Asylees. Temporary Appellate Immigration Judge Liebman concurred and dissented, but mostly dissented. Mr. TCA, an acronym because he's an asylum applicant, is from Albania and was granted asylum as a derivative of his father's asylum grant in 2012. Must be a younger guy. Must have been a child in 2012. And since he's been here since 2001, he's essentially grown up in this country. However, sometime after obtaining asylum, he was convicted of bank fraud in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1344-2, and aggravated identity theft in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1028-AA-1. And he was sentenced to a lot of time in prison. But not five years. 
DHS placed Mr. TCA back in removal proceedings where an immigration judge determined that at least one of the convictions was an aggravated felony, meaning that Mr. TCA is removable. With the aggravated felony findings sustained and Mr. TCA removable, DHS nonetheless and additionally moved to terminate Mr. TCA's asylum status. And that's because aggravated felonies are per se particularly serious crimes for asylum purposes. So the IJ granted DHS's motion, and in addition to finding Mr. TCA removable, terminated his asylum status. In response, Mr. TCA reapplied for asylum and related relief, but also sought to adjust his status to that of an LPR under INA Section 209B concurrently with a waiver of inadmissibility under INA Section 209C, as asylees can do. To explain this a bit further, while aggravated felonies may make non-citizens previously admitted to the U.S. removable under INA Section 237, they don't make non-citizens inadmissible unless they match an inadmissibility ground at INA Section 212. And that's because aggravated felonies aren't listed at Section 212. Here, DHS probably alleged that the aggravated felonies were also CIMTs, which are inadmissibility provisions and therefore can bar an asylee from adjusting status to that of an LPR, absent a waiver. But here's the thing. There's always a thing. The IJ held that Mr. TCA couldn't even apply for adjustment of status under INA Section 209 because he was no longer an asylee. Remember the IJ terminated the status? And without the special path to adjusting status under the refugee provisions, Mr. TCA can't adjust absent a qualifying family member or employment-based petition. Seems like he doesn't have one. So it's Section 209 adjustment, or bust. The BIA agreed with the IJ. That is, it held that Mr. TCA couldn't apply for adjustment of status. Now true. The BIA believed the issue ambiguous, quote, the text and legislative history of Section 209B do not reveal whether Congress clearly intended adjustment of status under this provision to be available to respondents who asylee status has been terminated, end quote. So with that ambiguous finding going forward, if circuits agree that the statute is ambiguous and that this decision is reasonable, they must defer to it. See, Section 209B permits, quote, any non-citizen granted asylum, end quote, to adjust, so long as they meet some other qualifications not at issue here. Appellate Judge Liebman in dissent believes that that includes non-citizens like Mr. TCA who have been granted asylum, irrespective of whether or not they lost it, later. But the majority believes that, quote, the statute and regulation require applicants to possess an initial status before they may adjust to lawful permanent resident status, end quote. That is, if the non-citizen doesn't presently have asylum, they can't adjust to LPR status under Section 209B. This is in part based on how the BIA has defined the term status in the past. The majority believes it connotes a current rather than previous set of circumstances. Then, the BIA also affirmed the IJ's denial of Mr. TCA's alternative application for withholding of removal and protection of the Torture Convention. Importantly, the BIA agreed that his crimes, although not per se particularly serious crimes for withholding because you don't have the five years imprisonment, were particularly serious crimes nonetheless. 
In essence, this is the second time this month that the BIA has held, seemingly to me for the first time and definitely the first time in a long time, that financial crimes fall within the ambit of particularly serious crimes as matter of NAM requires as an initial finding. Though the BIA did throw me a bone from my howling three weeks ago in matter of FRA, footnoting to, quote, emphasize that not all fraud or financial crimes or other crimes that do not cause physical harm or endangerment to persons will be particularly serious, end quote. So there's that. Also, the BIA agreed in essence that conditions had changed in Albania such that Mr. TCA no longer qualified for withholding under the INA or CAT deferral. Indeed, Mr. TCA traveled there a couple times unharmed between 2008 and 2012. Anyway, while Mr. TCA did not succeed, there's lots of stuff in this decision to help with your statutory interpretation arguments before an IJ or the BIA, whatever those arguments may be. And one important caveat. In determining that non-citizens with asylum terminated cannot adjust status under INA Section 209b, the BIA expressly disagreed with the Fifth Circuit's decision in Suey v. Holder, published in 2014. And even though the BIA found the statute ambiguous and appears to have invoked the Supreme Court's Brand X decision in this decision here, the Fifth Circuit held in Suey that the statute was unambiguous on the issue. Throw down. That would appear to mean, administrative law nerds, that this decision means nothing in the Fifth Circuit. And it means that you should use the analysis in Suey to reserve the argument and eventually argue it in all circuits. Or simply argue appellate I.J. Liebman's dissent. And that is matter of TCA. Next is Adyanju v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on February 24th, 2022. Another long one, this time on standards of review. If that gets you excited, you're weird. And I must say, I love you, First Circuit, but on the whole and after nearly 100 episodes, your immigration decisions may be the lengthiest of all circuits. I salute you. Mr. Adyanju is from Nigeria, entered the U.S. as a tourist, overstayed, and within seven months, married a U.S. citizen that he met online. The problem was that he appears to have been engaged in Nigeria to someone else shortly before. He filed two applications for visas with the State Department, stating as much a couple of years before his entry. Nevertheless, he applied to adjust status through his marriage and received conditional lawful permanent resident status with USCIS. But before the two years was up and the condition was removed, he and his wife in the U.S. separated. They still jointly filed the I-751 petition to remove the condition, though, so not insignificant victory for Mr. Adianju. However, it seems that the marriage may have deteriorated because Mr. Adianju began a relationship with someone else, who then became pregnant with his child. Not only that, there were some police reports made that were documenting some pretty bad behavior against women, although no charges were ever brought. Not painting the most sympathetic picture, First Circuit. Anyway, in 2018, USCIS denied the jointly filed I-751 petition, believing that marriage fraud was afoot. Not only did that mean that the condition to Mr. Adianju's LPR status was not removed, but he was placed in removal proceedings. 
Didn't help that the wife, quote, told the officer at an interview that Mr. Adianju lied to her about why he was marrying her, not for love, but rather to gain an immigration benefit, end quote. Pretty specific quote, and in fairness, she denied saying that later on. But there Mr. Adianju ended up, in removal proceedings, where an immigration judge then tasked with determining de novo, or in the first instance, whether a valid marriage occurred, such that the condition to the LPR status should be removed, or alternatively, that Mr. Adianju should be removed. And the complications have only begun. By the time of removal proceedings, Mr. Adianju divorced the first wife and married the mother of his child, also a U.S. citizen. The second wife filed her own petition for Mr. Adianju in an attempt to get him adjusted to LPR status in immigration court. Then at the same time, it appears that Mr. Adianju filed a new second I-751 petition, this time requesting a waiver of the requirement that he jointly file with his first wife, under INA Section 216C4. Confusing stuff. Then, Mr. Adianju was arrested for rape and kidnapping of a different woman. My God. Never underestimate the power of a well-written factual background, brief writers. The new adjustment of status application through the second wife ended up before the immigration judge. And get this, the IJ granted the application. The IJ weighed a whole lot of stuff, including the fact that the rape and kidnapping charges were merely pending, it wasn't a conviction. Mr. Adianju was apparently quite open about everything, he was deemed credible, and he had explanations for a lot of the bad things. As to that second I-751 waiver that was still pending before USCIS, the IJ deemed it unnecessary because the IJ deemed that he or she had jurisdiction over the new adjustment of status application. At least that's how I'm reading this very confusing decision. DHS appealed. The BIA had quite a different view of the IJ's weighing of evidence in determining whether Mr. Adianju warranted discretionary adjustment of status. Reviewing the discretionary finding de novo, the BIA held that Mr. Adianju did not warrant relief as a matter of discretion. Mr. Adianju petitioned for review, arguing that the BIA engaged in improper fact-finding in its discretionary denial. Okay, standards of review, which is what this case is really about. The BIA cannot engage in its own fact-finding, and it will uphold an IJ's finding of fact unless the IJ commits clear error. Or as the First Circuit puts it, to overturn an IJ on its fact-finding, quote, a challenger must show that the contested finding stinks like a five-week-old, unrefrigerated, dead fish, end quote. Now that's a standard of review we can all get behind, or in front of. I think I'll start referring to my brother simply as a clear error, a pretty nice insult in and of itself. Let him connect the additional dots on the fish odor, should he ever listen to my illustrious podcast. Anyway, this standard of review is in contrast to discretionary findings, which the BIA reviews de novo, that is, in the first instance, on its own. So how did the BIA review issues here? That's the crux of the case. Well, that question comes down largely to the BIA's 2010 decision in a matter of HLH and ZYZ, where the BIA held that in conducting its de novo discretionary review, even though it can't make new findings of fact, it can reweigh facts previously found by the IJ. The First Circuit agreed that the BIA can do that, and additionally, that it could, quote, pull from the undisputed record additional underlying facts not spotted by the IJ, end quote. 
So long as the facts are in the record, and this is important, appellate writers, undisputed, the BIA can rely on them and reweigh them. And remember that such a rule benefits respondents' councils just as much or maybe more as DHS. Seems like a lot of circuits agree, too. Alright, so the BIA can reweigh evidence. But did the BIA nonetheless err in its overturning of certain IJ factual findings? Remember, dead fish clear air review on factual findings. And that's a high watermark, if you will. Was the IJ as wrong as my brother? I.e., a five-week-old unrefrigerated dead fish? Well, Mr. Adianju identified five instances where the BIA allegedly violated its clear error review by overturning the IJ's factual finding. But we'd be here all day if I went down that road, so here are the two that the First Circuit agreed with and that resulted in a partial win for Mr. Adianju. First, remember those police reports? The IJ deemed Mr. Adianju's conduct towards women, quote, creepy, end quote, but not overly instructive to his character, particularly given the time lapse from when they had occurred. The BIA disagreed, but according to the First Circuit, there wasn't evidence to support the BIA's conclusion that, quote, creepy behavior may have escalated, end quote, in recent years. Such a finding is not really re-weighing, it's fact-finding. Put another way, quote, choosing another plausible interpretation of the evidence is fact-finding and does not meet the BIA's obligation to utilize clear error review, end quote. So that was a mistake. Second, the BIA violated clear error review when it disagreed with the IJ having, quote, specifically found that Mr. Adianju did not intend to commit fraud or give an inaccurate answer on the visa application, end quote, when he wrote on it that he was engaged. See, Mr. Adianju testified that he wasn't really engaged in Nigeria, but that he was in a close relationship with a woman and that culturally, the word engaged could apply. But it wasn't really an engagement. The IJ agreed. So when the BIA instead read the record as supporting a finding that Mr. Adianju, quote, inaccurately claimed that he was engaged to a woman in Nigeria, end quote, the BIA was just kind of making that up with no factual basis. Violation of Clear Error Review These two flaws undermine the BIA's decision to deny discretionary adjustment of status so much that remand was required. So the First Circuit did. The First Circuit also remanded for further consideration of whether that second I-751 waiver was warranted. To recap, even though USCIS denied that first jointly filed I-751 petition to remove the condition, Mr. Adianju filed the second one by himself, arguing that his marriage to his first wife was entered into good faith so the IJ should remove the condition to his LPR status, that way. Forget about the new adjustment of status application, he wants to rely on the old one in the alternative. So it would seem. And that's allowed with a waiver. So, I guess the logic goes, if the BIA was going to vacate the adjustment of status grant through the second wife, and even though USCIS hadn't yet decided the second waiver, Mr. Adianju sought to ask the IJ for continuances on remand until USCIS decided that second waiver. And case law supports that course of action. See the BIA's 1999 decision in matter of Stowers and its 1994 decision in matter of Mendez. Well, the BIA didn't sufficiently explain its reasoning for why remand wasn't warranted on this basis. So that got remanded too. 31 footnotes and took pretty much a whole flight from Seattle to San Diego to review. Congratulations, Sangyu Kim, and a whole bunch of other individuals and entities for the win. And I'm not quite done. 
As we've discussed in recent weeks, some circuits, the 5th and 8th Circuit come to mind, won't review a claim that the BIA engaged in improper fact-finding unless the non-citizen files a motion to reconsider with the BIA, making the argument. Unsure if the First Circuit is in that camp, the First Circuit kind of punts here, but Mr. Adianju's attorneys played it safe and filed that motion to reconsider with the BIA. Well done. And that is Adianju v. Garland. Quite the case, huh? Next is a much shorter one from the First Circuit, Lopez Perez v. Garland, published on February 22, 2022. This case is about asylum and related relief. Mr. Lopez Perez is from Guatemala and entered the United States without authorization in 2012 at 16 years old. It appears he was with his parents, was included on their asylum application in immigration court, but was unaware that his parents withdrew the application until his own removal proceedings began many years later, at 23 years old. Unsure what happened in those first removal proceedings after his parents withdrew the asylum application, but years later in his own removal proceedings, Mr. Lopez Perez filed his own application for asylum and related relief. He testified that he was part of the indigenous Mom ethnic group, describing a lifetime of bullying, and that his cousin was kidnapped and threatened in 2008 in Guatemala. He testified that his cousin was kidnapped because he was, quote, perceived as a wealthy merchant, end quote. The immigration judge denied the asylum application as untimely, and denied withholding of removal and protection out of the torture convention, which entail higher evidentiary burdens, for a litany of reasons, including a finding that any harm feared was not on account of one of the five protected grounds, and that Mr. Lopez Perez had not established that he'd be tortured with the consent or acquiescence of the Guatemalan government. A bit surprisingly, the IJ also denied Mr. Lopez Perez's alternative application for post-conclusion voluntary departure. Perhaps there's a criminal record? The BIA affirmed. And the First Circuit did too. First, the timeliness issue. Mr. Lopez Perez definitely filed his own asylum application over a year after arriving into the United States, but that one-year deadline can be extended and told if justified by, quote, changed or extraordinary circumstances, end quote. Unfortunately for Mr. Lopez Perez, the First Circuit takes the position that it cannot review factual challenges to the agency's refusal to extend the one-year deadline, and here, it believed that Mr. Lopez Perez brought a factual, rather than legal, challenge to the agency's decision. So no review on the one-year deadline issue. On the merits of withholding of removal, which has no time-limit filing deadline, the First Circuit affirmed. It first agreed that Mr. Lopez Perez hadn't suffered past persecution, quote, Although the addition of physical violence is not required, end quote, the First Circuit agreed that the harassment and racial slurs that Mr. Lopez Perez experienced growing up, even combined with his cousin's kidnapping, didn't rise to the level of past persecution. And importantly, Mr. Lopez Perez didn't himself receive any threats related to the kidnapping. Without a past persecution finding, Mr. Lopez Perez doesn't enjoy a presumptively well-founded fear of future persecution and must establish that he warrants withholding of removal without the presumption. This he did not do, particularly as his sister and another cousin still live unharmed in Guatemala, and they too are apparently similarly situated to him. The First Circuit also agreed with the BIA that the record did not show, as Mr. Lopez Perez argued, that, quote, if sent back to his country, he will be forced to join the Mom militia and fight for lands nearby the Mom settlement, end quote. On the cat, 
the First Circuit affirmed the BIA. The argument was similar to the mom one I just mentioned. The First Circuit believed that the record didn't show that he would, quote, be tortured by or with the acquiescence of a government official if he were returned to Guatemala, end quote, as the cat requires. Finally, post-conclusion voluntary departure, which if granted would permit Mr. Lopez-Perez to avoid a removal order and its 10-year bar to re-entry. It would, however, require him to leave the United States, and as it appears that he's been in the United States for over one year with unlawful presence, he may have another 10-year bar anyway. But such is immigration law, and there are waivers, potentially. Anyway, the First Circuit affirmed the denial of voluntary departure. Or that is to say, it believed that, like with the one-year bar issue, it lacked jurisdiction to decide the fact-based challenge. And yes, by the way, it does appear that Mr. Lopez-Perez does appear to have some criminal convictions and arrests, which led the IJ to deny voluntary departure. Tell you this, though. If you'd like to turn a fact-based challenge into a legal one of the First Circuit, perhaps rely, as the First Circuit cited, on its 2020 decision in Lee v. Barr, and argue that, quote, the law categorically precludes an immigration court from taking such facts into account, end quote. That appears to be a reviewable legal challenge in the First Circuit, no matter what the issue is. But Mr. Lopez-Perez lost his case. One more thing on past persecution. On past persecution. Note that the First Circuit expressly did not address whether the IJ should have applied a lower past persecution standard due to Mr. Lopez-Perez's age as a child at the time of the relevant events an argument akin to that explained extensively by the Enbank Fourth Circuit in Portillo Flores v. Garland, discussed on episode 62. The First Circuit didn't address the issue because it was brought up for the first time on petition for review, possibly following the Fourth Circuit's decision. But the First Circuit didn't reject the argument. It's still there, First Circuit practitioners, to be timely brought up. And that is Lopez Perez v. Garland. Next up, if ever so briefly, is B.R.V. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on February 23, 2022. In this case, the Ninth Circuit panel amended and reissued its July 2021 decision in B.R.V. Garland, discussed in detail in episode 64 of the podcast, so check that episode out. The case is quite complicated, and it is about a lot of things, including service of notices to appear on minors, the Flores Chavez v. Ashcroft decision, and termination of removal proceedings. Like before, the Ninth Circuit has granted and denied in part the petition. To be clear, in this superseding opinion, the panel held that 1. Substantial evidence supported the agency's conclusion that Mr. B.R. was properly served a copy of his notice to appear. 2. DHS later cured its initial failure to serve the NTA on Mr. B.R.'s custodian when he was released from detention as a minor. 3. The agency erred by failing to credit or discredit Mr. B.R.'s specific evidence that the government's evidence of alienage was tainted by violations of his constitutional rights. And 4. The evidence did not compel reversal of the agency's denial of protection under the cap. So in essence, Mr. B.R. again got a remand for the BIA to decide whether or not the immigration judge needed to exclude all evidence of alienage because the evidence was obtained in a fundamentally unfair way. All issues previously decided. Lots going on here, and again, I encourage you to listen to episode 64. But after doing so, how about this quote? 
Taken from the Ninth Circuit's 2018 decision in Sanchez v. Sessions, DHS's violation of its own regulations should lead to termination of proceedings where, quote, one, the agency violated a regulation, two, the regulation was promulgated for the benefit of petitioners, and three, the violation was egregious, meaning that it involved conscious, shocking conduct deprived the petitioner of fundamental rights or prejudiced the petitioner, end quote. And the BIA failed to apply that standard here regarding the improper service of the notice to appear on Mr. B.R., and so the Ninth Circuit remanded. Putting it in layman's terms, depending on which regulation DHS violates, there may be a different standard for terminating removal proceedings. And the Ninth Circuit also remanded, as it did before, for DHS to rebut Mr. B.R.'s prima facie showing that DHS obtained and submitted evidence of his alienage by committing an egregious violation of his constitutional rights, thereby potentially requiring suppression of alienage. Again, a very complicated issue discussed last time around. Mr. B.R.'s remains quite the case, and something to definitely review if you've got a case where a minor is served with an NTA, or where you believe DHS's evidence of alienage must be excluded in your client's case. Evidence of alienage is always important, because remember, it's the first hurdle that DHS must establish. If DHS cannot establish alienage, no matter the case, termination is required. And if, like here... DHS attempts to establish alienage by relying on a birth certificate that was potentially obtained by accessing foreign records, or by obtaining a criminal pre-sentence investigative report that was placed under seal at the time DHS accessed it, well, you've got a case similar to Mr. B.R.'s, and may warrant exclusion of the evidence. And that is B.R. v. Garland, the second time. Next is Gallegos v. Garland, published by the 8th Circuit on February 22, 2022. This decision is about an absentia motions to reopen. Ms. Gallegos is from Mexico, married a U.S. citizen, and became a lawful permanent resident. But after USCIS granted her application for LPR status, DHS seems to have investigated the marriage and believed the marriage fraudulent. That is, that the marriage was entered into solely for immigration purposes so they placed Ms. Gallegos in removal proceedings, alleging that she obtained her LPR status through fraud. The notice to appear that she received contained the date, time, and location of her first removal hearing, but the immigration court later sent out a notice of hearing changing that date. Ms. Gallegos didn't appear for the later date, and she was ordered removed in absentia. But it appears that Ms. Gallegos timely filed a motion to reopen within 180 days of that removal order, arguing that, as the statute and regulations allow, exceptional circumstances prevented her from attending the hearing. Namely, she submitted a statement explaining that she had mental health issues, depression and anxiety specifically, that she had misplaced the NTA as a result, and that she had also misremembered the hearing date in the NTA. She submitted medical records corroborating her mental health issues. The IJ denied the motion, and the BIA affirmed, with the IJ stating, for example, that, quote, depression did not amount to an exceptional circumstance, end quote. The Eighth Circuit affirmed the agency. One reason is because the statute itself defines exceptional circumstances for this situation as those, quote, such as battery or extreme cruelty to the non-citizen or any child or parent of the non-citizen, serious illness of the non-citizen, or serious illness or death of the spouse, child, or parent of the non-citizen, but not including less compelling circumstances beyond the control of the non-citizen, end quote. 
That definition doesn't necessarily foreclose depression as an exceptional circumstance in all cases, but it's not a good start. And to be clear, the Eighth Circuit doesn't say that depression is never an exceptional circumstance. It just held that it wasn't met here, for example, because Ms. Gallegos, quote, does not claim the mental illness itself would have prevented her from attending the hearing had she found the NTA sooner and confirmed the hearing date, end quote. The Eighth Circuit also held that the BIA properly considered, and it appears rejected, Ms. Gallegos' argument that the IJ's cursory order denying her motion violated her due process rights. Then, the Eighth Circuit agreed with the pretty rough line of Fifth Circuit cases and its own decision in Lasso v. Barr, discussed on episode 14 of the podcast, that in order to bring a claim that the BIA engaged in impermissible fact-finding, as Ms. Gallegos alternatively argued, Ms. Gallegos and other non-citizens in the Eighth Circuit must first file a motion to reconsider with the BIA, alerting the BIA to its error. Sound familiar? Finally, the Eighth Circuit refused to adjudicate Ms. Gallegos' argument that the IJ impermissibly deemed her removable. And that is because, in essence, by not showing up for her hearing, the court believed that that ship had sailed. And that now, under the law, Ms. Gallegos was merely, quote, appealing the BIA's decision, affirming the IJ's denial of her motion to reopen and rescind the in absentia order of removal, not the removal order itself, end quote. Ms. Gallegos, therefore, did not get her case reopened. But there's something curious about this one. While the issue was unadjudicated, it's worth noting that in the case below, DHS also charged Ms. Gallegos as removable under INA Section 237A1GII, quote, for failing or refusing to fulfill a marital agreement which was made for the purpose of procuring admission as an immigrant, end quote. Now, admittingly, I've never encountered this removal provision probably because marriage fraud cases like this usually travel, as they also did in this very case, under INA Section 237A1A vis-a-vis INA Section 212A6CI, the Fraud at Admission Statute. Why did DHS charge both Section 237 grounds of removability here? I don't know. But what I do know is an INA Section 237A1H waiver can waive the latter removability provision, the Fraud at the Time of Admission Removability. And I don't believe it would waive removability under the former, INA Section 237A1G. Maybe that's why DHS charged both grounds. I don't know. If so, though, that's definitely something to watch out for in the future. And that is Gallegos v. Garland. That brings us to Katakov v. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on February 25th, 2022. This case is about, as the Sixth Circuit describes it, the, quote, immigration death sentence, end quote, frivolous asylum findings. Mr. Katakov is from Uzbekistan and entered the U.S. in 2001 on a tourist visa. He overstayed and, once in removal proceedings, filed an application for asylum and related relief, claiming that he had previously been persecuted, quote, by nationalists and fascists, end quote, in that country. During removal proceedings, he married a U.S. citizen and, because he had initially entered the U.S. after inspection and admission, sought to adjust to LPR status in court through that marriage. Although not required to do so to adjust, he, quote, withdrew his request for asylum, end quote and instead applied for adjustment. Perhaps alerted by the withdrawal of the application for asylum, or perhaps not, the IJ determined that Mr. Katakov lied in his asylum application, 
Indeed, Mr. Kadikov himself eventually, quote, admitted that the application contained false information because he had not been persecuted in Uzbekistan and did not fear returning there, end quote. The IJ eventually made a frivolous asylum finding. In so concluding, the IJ described Mr. Kadikov as, quote, one of the most remarkably and demonstrably dishonest people with whom this court has dealt in well over 30 years of experience on the bench, end quote. So you're saying he's got a chance. Mr. Katakov appealed, and while on appeal, became eligible for non-LPR cancellation of removal due to the Supreme Court's Pereira decision, which held that a deficient NTA did not stop the accrual of continuous physical presence for non-LPR cancellation of removal. I.e., Mr. Katakov got his 10 years during proceedings because his NTA lacked the date, time, and location of his first hearing. Mr. Katakov therefore moved the BIA to remand, but the BIA denied the motion, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court remanded after Nez Chavez, which rejected the argument for denying the motion, that is, that a notice of hearing, coupled with a deficient NTA, can stop the accrual of 10 years' continuous physical presence. So Mr. Katakov does have his 10 years, notwithstanding the subsequent notice of hearing. That's Nez Chavez. However, it still didn't win the day for Mr. Katakov. That's what this decision is about because a finding that an asylum seeker has filed a knowingly frivolous asylum application after receiving proper notice of the consequences will permanently bar the non-citizen from any and all immigration benefits. That includes adjustment of status, and it includes non-LPR cancellation of removal, even if technically eligible. Here, Mr. Katakov didn't contest that he filed a frivolous asylum application. What he argued is that he didn't receive the required notice of the consequences of doing so, meaning that, under the statute, he can't suffer the consequences of permanent bars to immigration relief. He's right if he didn't receive proper notice. But the Sixth Circuit held that he did. See, Mr. Katakov signed Part D of the asylum application, and Part D states that, quote, applicants determined to have knowingly made a frivolous application for asylum will be permanently ineligible for any benefits, end quote under immigration law. The Sixth Circuit believed it unimportant that Mr. Katakov never signed the other part of the application before an IJ, and that the IJ never gave Mr. Katakov this warning orally, as IJs often do. Simply put, said the Sixth Circuit, the statute doesn't require IJs to give the frivolous filing warning orally. And a bunch of circuits apparently agree, at least in part. One apparent caveat, though, quote, Written warning might not suffice if an applicant did not adequately learn of it, say, because the applicant does not speak English and the person who completed the application did not pass along this information, end quote. But not the case here. Also good to remember, quote, immigrants who file frivolous applications cannot avoid a finding that their applications were frivolous by later withdrawing them, end quote. So, Mr. Katakov lost his case, but we're not quite done yet. Now, Mr. Katakov actually made another argument, that he never actually filed the asylum application in the first place, but instead merely lodged it with the court. The Sixth Circuit rejected that argument, apparently believing that lodging an asylum application wasn't a thing when Mr. Katakov submitted his application in 2008. And that might be correct. And after all, Mr. Katakov again did sign Part D of his application, and he submitted it at a master calendar hearing as the rules required in 2008. But if I recall, 
Lodging did indeed become a thing in or around 2014 via a policy memo issued by the chief immigration judge. At or around that time, non-citizens in removal proceedings could simply submit an asylum application with the court clerk, rather than at a hearing as used to be required, so as to meet the one-year deadline, and I believe, begin the 180-day clock to obtain work authorization. So perhaps Mr. Katakov's argument that a lodged rather than filed asylum application won't trigger the frivolous filing bar has legs in post-policy memo cases. And I wonder what the ruling would have been in any event if Mr. Katakov hadn't signed Part D of his application. Wouldn't test any of it by risking your bar license and lodging a frivolous asylum application for your client, but the argument may still be there if an already lodged application post-policy memo comes across your desk. And that is Katakov v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.